Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast and with us this week we have Bruce Southey. Hello. Hi Sam, how are you? Very good, very good. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? Yeah, okay. Uh, um, I'm basically the, the co-founder, um, the founder and um, managing director, if you like, of Rocketeer Cars, which uh, mm. um, puts Jaguar V6 engines into MX-5s. In a nutshell, Which sounds yeah. like a sounds like a great idea. <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds like a crazy idea, but actually, when you, well, when you yeah. drill down into it, it makes a lot of sense. I think. Yeah. So, where did this all sort of begin? Where did your journey towards this begin? Even like, have you been um, always putting engines in cars or what? Effectively, yes. The idea sprang originally when uh, I was working at Overfinch, um, which you may okay. know yeah. does shoehorn big engines into into or used to shoehorn big engines into Range Rovers so um the idea of doing an engine transplant wasn't um alien to me um I've always loved MX-5s had a few of them um they were launched when I was at university and it just seemed to be um a distillation of everything that a sports car should be in a uh, Mm. modern package so there's all I've always had a soft spot for them um owned a few and we all know they lack power. So, um, so the idea was to, to add power, um, but not just, I didn't want a turbo, didn't want a supercharge. That just seemed to be, you know, squeezing too much out of a little engine. And yeah, it's, it's always still going to be a four pot. And I wanted something a bit more exotic. So the hunt was on for, okay, if I'm going to change the engine, what's it going to be? Um, littered around the workshop at Overfinch are, you know, VA engines left, right and center. So that was the obvious first choice, but, that's just wrong. It's just, you know, the <laughs> MX-5 is, 
I know the Americans do it and do it very successfully. And if that's your if that's your thing, then great. But it wasn't what I was after. It wasn't what I was trying to achieve. Yeah. And the V8 is just it's overkill. It's it's overpowering, figuratively and and literally. So the V8 yeah. was just wrong. MX5 or Miata is is not a muscle car. It never was. It's a it's a little compact sports car, European sports car. <laughs> so um, and the chap who uh, ran over Finch who really knew, knows his stuff, he knew everything about everything car-wise. He said, try the, um, you know, the, the V6 made no sense. Straight six is going to be too long. Um, V8's too much, so it had to be a six. Um, so V6 made sense. The obvious choice was going to be something like a, uh, an Alfa Romeo, you know, a, a Busso engine, which right. is like... But they're quite expensive, they're not particularly light. And anyway, the, the guy who ran over Finch at the time, a chap called Douglas Cook, who was very, very knowledgeable of these things, um, said try the, the Ford. To have, um, uh, the, originally the 2.5, which he had in a Mondeo or something, um, yeah. he said that's as sweet as any Italian lump. It's, you know, it's a really, really nice engine. So the hunt was on for one of those. Um, and the best of the bunch, they made millions of them in all sorts of shapes and sizes, uh, 2.5 up to, uh, well, they do a 2.1 as well, actually. 2.5 up to 3 litres, all showing pretty much the same fundamental architecture. Uh, it was used in things like Nobles. Um, but the best of the bunch okay, was the yeah. Jaguar because uh, it had a forged crank. It had a slightly it had a better power output. It was always designed to be north-south installation, so um, it didn't have sort of ancillaries hanging off the back of one of the heads and stuff like that, which some of the transverse designs did. And so originally I bought... Uh, um, an S-type Jaguar, literally the whole thing, with the intention of transplanting the whole powertrain. Because, oh, OK, yeah. that's, that's going to be easy. Just keep the gearbox, keep the diff. But you know, when I actually start thinking about it, working it out, it's like, well, if I, if, I, if I change the gearbox, I've got to change the diff. If I change the diff, I've got to change the half shafts. And, and before you know worries, you've no longer got an MX-5, and, and that kind of defeats yeah. the object. So everything that's great about the MX-5, the purity of it, the balance of it, that had to remain. It was, it was pointless doing this just, just for more power. There's, you know, um, so the idea was to keep everything that's great about the MX-5 and throw nothing away. So mm. the decision was sort of fairly, you know, the logical, logical train of thought was actually just, let's just keep the engine and everything south of that, i.e. gearbox, transmission, diff, everything, all the suspension, yeah. everything, stays the same. That beautiful gear shift, that was, you know, one of those attributes that you want to keep. Um, yeah. The balance. The other thing about the V6 engine, it's all aluminium. And so it's actually lighter than the, the 1.8 four-pot that comes out. So oh, you're brilliant. in with a fighting chance of actually not upsetting the balance. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't think the, the engine is pretty light for what it is, but actually it's, it's the... Um, the boat anchor of a 1.8 that's, that's in there. Originally, it's not particularly... That's, that's really heavy. So that was to our advantage. Um, and so the the first car was built uh, just using a... It was only ever designed as a one-off, just for myself. This was just a you know, bit of entertainment at the weekends kind of thing. Yeah. Just because, you know, it seemed like a good idea. Surely this is quite a big project. It, well, it turned into a big project. It shouldn't really have been... Um, but as these things, uh, yeah, generally materialise. So the, 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 the sort of uh, the epiphany moment was we actually got the engine running, got it in the car and actually drove it down the road. And um, the thing I was hoping for but didn't dare to, to um, you know, expect 
was this sort of um, the character of it. It was so literally the first time I drove it around down the road, it was the suspension was horribly set up. None of the geometry was done. Um, none of the mapping was done. It was on throttle bodies. It was horrible in in so many ways. It was horrible, but it had that. It had something. It had that sort of little essence of soul, and it was that moment of like, do you know what this this is going to work? This is this is. There was no other way of telling it, it was than just to build it and find out. And it yeah. it was like yes, we've got something here. This this could be really really good. Basically, I took it to a few shows and things like that. Uh, Goodwood Breakfast Club and um, uh, shows like that. And then this chap called Alex Kirsten, who I'd never heard of at the time, but a friend of mine said, oh, you want to yep. get in touch with him? He's into his MX-5s. And he was looking for something to do with his Phil, his his little yep. MX-5. Um, and he got hold of it. I said, oh, yeah, come and drive it. It'd be great. You know, fine. So he drove the prototype um, and went mad for it. He was, you know, it was a really good video. He was, you know, the, the enthusiasm for it really came through. He's a bit of a character, but the, you know, he is. basically the essence of it, he really, I think he, he captured it quite nicely. Um, he understood it, I think. And that just sort of, it kind of took off from there. And um, he said, I want one. And lots of other people have said, yeah, I'd like one. So, all right then, okay, if I, get, if I get 25, this is what I reckon it's going to cost. If I get 25 deposits, did my maths, yeah, which isn't brilliant, yeah. um, <laughs> I'll build it. I'll, you know, I'll make, I'll, make, I'll make 25 of them. There you go. Um, and to my surprise and somewhat, uh, I suppose, disappointment, I got 25 deposits. Oh, <laughs> oh crap, okay, yeah, now I've got to do this. Um, so, okay, fine, I hadn't really thought about it. I really didn't expect that to happen. So the, the task was then, okay, I've got to make 25 of these. What's, you know, take it all apart and, okay, if I'm going to make 25 of these, what's the best way of doing it? And can I make some improvements at the same time? Mm. And, yeah, the designer in me just got a bit carried away. It's like, right, well, you've just got to start again, basically. So we've proved the principle. Basically, that first prototype was literally that. It was a proof of principle. It demonstrated yeah. that actually the idea was, was correct. We demonstrated that, you know, it had that... Um, Greater than the sum of its parts. If ever there was a, you know, mm. V6 plus MX5 equals MX5, is greater than MX V6, <laughs> is, is so true. Mm. Um, so pretty much everything got redesigned. Every single component was, um, I think the only thing that, that remained was, um, I think, the front pulley design we, we, we kept. Um, but everything else, we had a new subframe. We actually borrowed a, a subframe from the V8 conversions. There's this tubular thing, which gives you a lot more, lot more space for packaging. Okay. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, it wasn't particularly um, stiff or strong. So we, we designed our own for that. And, you know, new headers, new intake system, because the, the, the uh, throttle bodies were hopeless and didn't actually yield any sort of decent power. They sounded really good, but apart from that, they didn't really, didn't really work. And we wanted something that was... I say OE. We, you, people's expectations of these things are very, very high now because of what the you know big manufacturers do. What you get yeah. is is incredible, really. The engineering and, uh, input that goes into a modern car these days is extraordinary, and that's just that's the hygiene. That's the entry level now. That's what people expect. It's you, it's um, it's very easy to say you know built not bought and make mm. excuses for lots and lots of things that you know things that don't work properly and uh, are. Less than ideal, but people don't like that. So you've got to get all those things right. Yeah. So we went to um, uh, plenums instead of instead of throttle bodies to get things like you know decent idle control, 
hot and cold start, all that sort of thing, working yeah. nicely. And they yielded better power and torque. And it was all batch production, so um, each batch you learn something new and it gets better and better and better, and we're pretty much nailed now. It's, I think it's, you know, we've, we've got something that's very repeatable, um, very reliable. We're always learning stuff, we're always improving things. Um, um, and to date, I think we've done about, uh, it's over 100 kits have been sold now. Um, oh, wow. And about, there's, there's uh, at least 10 UK factory-built cars. Um, and there's also nice. um, cars in Europe, America, uh, Australia. There's actually three in Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> which is, Just, yeah. Did one person buy one and then his mates Br- They all seem to know each other, yes. Yeah, yeah, two of them bought them at the same time. How do you go about designing all of these parts? Like, okay, what's your sort of background-ish on this sort of oh, thing? Oh, right. Yeah, like, well, my background is design. So um, I okay. studied transport design or the uh, Coventry University, which is basically mm. an industrial design course, but with a focus on transport and cars. So yeah. with the intent, I wanted to be a car designer, you know, the, the saucy yeah. sketches, so the, the slick renderings and, yeah, I wanted to be a car. I want, and yeah, I suppose I am now. So, yeah, Coventry University was my uh, training ground, as it were. Um, I worked mainly in product design early on, uh, consultancies mm-hmm. in London. When I graduated, it was actually pretty difficult to go and find a job in automotive because it was a, a big recession and the automotive industry yeah. was on its knees and all sorts of things. So it was actually pretty tough going to find, you know, go straight into the studios, which was... Mm-hmm. So I ended up working in design consultancy and by more luck than judgment, actually, they turned out to be doing a lot of transport stuff. So I did a lot of aircraft interiors um, early on. Okay. So things like... Um, one of the first sleeper seats for Singapore Airlines. We worked on the, the first class sleeper seats for um, for that, um, and then a number of what, aircraft projects. After what that. are some of the like? What are some of the sort of challenges of designing an aircraft seat or interior? Um, well, weight. Number one is weight. Yeah, massive, massive. And then you've got um, uh, the all the crash tests so you're talking you know crash tests are pretty extensive in cars but in aircraft it's like 19 g test uh, test oh, uh, wow. crash test so they put this thing on a sled and slide it down at 19 g and and so you've got the you know that the challenge of of weight and um and strength and stuff like that but also i mean i'm, I'm not an engineer um yeah. by training or you know i do the engineering side of things as well but um, so that side of things, but you have to obviously as a designer, you have to be aware of those requirements. So you don't do you know, yeah. design stuff that can't. It has no hope of meeting that criteria. And bureaucracy, the, the amount of all the, um, <laughs> so I'll give you an example. One of the one of the um, we did a sled test on the um, the rainbow seat. I call it rainbow. That was the project name. Uh, it was an aircraft yeah. seat needed a, a sled test. Did nineteen G, and then um, the designers changed the. Uh, the specification of the fabric on the seats, just different colour or something like that. You know, yeah. the chairman's wife of, didn't didn't like the blue, so we did it red yeah. or something. Um, and all the engineers are saying we have to retest, we have to redo the sled test. Why? Because you change the coefficient of the um, coefficient of friction on the seats, that's going to change the result of the test. And it's like, really? <laughs> you know, what if we change the uniform? That's going to change the coefficient of friction. Do we still have to retest then? So stuff like that was was um, extraordinary. Um, yeah. you, get, you get that in the car industry as well. So, yeah, so having worked on planes, trains, did some trains, planes, trains and automobiles, um, I ended up working for 
an innovation company in Cambridge. So it's sort of technology innovation and stuff like that. And that was a great experience. I was in there about five years, but they, they kind of taught you how to think some of the methods okay. and the um, processes. So this building was basically full of 200 scientists and physicists and chemists and, you know, all brains the size of yeah. planets with dubious social skills and probably personal hygiene, <laughs> but brilliant minds, absolutely brilliant. And yeah. so um, working with people like that was fascinating and trying to herd their ideas into, into something, mm. you know, and build it up into something that's, you know, solving problems. That was a great, great yeah, experience. I met some really interesting people there. And what are you tasked with in somewhere like that? Just so inventing um, stuff or inventing <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And it was one of the things I think that there was really tough about it sometimes was, you know, one month you'd be working on, um, something proper, you know, life changing. So like insulin delivery devices. Okay, um, yeah. and when you go, we did a lot of research and, you know, talked to a lot of people who had diabetes type one, type two, and all the different methods they used to manage the condition. Um, it's a nasty, nasty, you know, having to live with that was horrible. And so, it was quite, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Inspiring mm. and rewarding because you, you were actually you were designing something and, you know, it was going to change someone's life. It was going to make their life a lot better. Yeah. Uh, and so that stuff, that was, that was, you know, fascinating. But then the next month you'd be working on pizza packaging. And <laughs> I found that really hard to reconcile. Is that, you know, all these brilliant people, these, these fantastic minds, and they're being put to task trying to make a crispier pizza. Um, and it, it, yeah, a microwave pizza. It's that was that yeah. was quite that was interesting. But you're working for big blue chip companies like you know the food yeah. companies and as well as medical and so on and so forth. So, but the the the, the focus on that was very much the user. So you know um, we called it empathic design. So really getting your head around exactly what the user. It's all the rage now, but this is like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm. With, with, you know, it was less of a, a buzzword, but the user-centric design wasn't really a thing. Yeah, that was a, that was a fantastic background of, you know, designing from a user's point of view. It's all very well having all the engineering and all the, um, the resources at your disposal, but if you're not designing it for the user, if you're not actually yeah. um, answering someone's need, it's all for nothing. It's, it's a waste of time, which goes back to, uh, you know, the, when we drove the Mazda for the first time, and it actually, hang on a minute, mm. this is, yeah, for all the engineering prowess, for all the, you know, the investment and so on and so forth. If it didn't have that, if it hadn't had that, um, then it was it would have been a waste of time. Doesn't matter how well it was engineered or or designed thereafter. So that was a really good grounding that that work in in understanding user needs and stuff like that. Yeah, presumably with with the engine when you put it in the car for the first time, like previously it's in a what was it S class, um, S type, yeah, S type. Sorry, uh, like. That car is significantly heavier, I imagine, than an MX-5. Yeah, it's, about, it's, it's the wrong and, side of two. Uh, it was probably just about the right side of two tons, but yeah, it's yeah. Heavy. So the the character, I imagine, of the engine feels significantly different in an mm. MX-5. Yes, like it's like you put a different engine in. Even it is, yeah, it, it really does. And uh, Dan Prosser, um, who, who drove it, he nailed that. He said he couldn't, couldn't believe this thing was actually in humdrum, you know. Jaguar saloons. <laughs> and he's right. When you actually look at the provenance of the engine and the design of the engineering of it, it's a sports car engine. There's no question. It's over square, so it revs to the heavens. It's got 
um, it's beautifully balanced. It's fantastically simple inside when you take it apart. It's beautifully designed. It was designed by Porsche. Cosworth finished it off. It's a gem. It's, it's, it's Ford's best-kept secret. In fact, actually, can we edit this out? Because the minute people find out, <laughs> you know, there are 300 quid in a scrapyard at the moment. They're, they're just going to go through the roof, except there's about 3 million yeah. of them. But it, it is. It's an absolute peach of an engine. Um, and for the purists out there, it's also found in Mazdas. Um, and Mazda actually tried that engine in the Mark II chassis as a prototype. The reason they didn't do this, Ooh. and I have this from Tom Matano himself, was... It was too good. Basically, it was going to it was going <laughs> to eat into RX sales, which they didn't want to do. So yeah. it was a marketing decision that said, mm, "No, we can't do this." It's so um, great minds think alike, or whatever. Fools seldom differ. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know they'd done that when I started the project, but it actually transpires they did actually have the same idea. So um, that's pretty cool. It is an absolute. Ju- it's a peach of an engine. It should have been. Yeah, and it's again, it's that greater than the sum of its parts. They seem to resonate that engine, that chassis. It's just, it's a fantastic combination. It really works. And the, presumably that engine is bigger than the previous engine. Is it a, a, a nightmare getting it in? There's actually, th- th- apart from the subframe, there's actually quite a lot of space in there. Yes, it is. It is. It's, it's wider, obviously being a V, but it's actually slightly shorter being three cylinders okay. with a slight over, uh, offset. But yeah, it, go, it, it goes in there. There's, when you actually take the engine, you take the engine out of an S-type and it's got all the ancillaries all over it. It looks enormous. Mm. The air conditioning pump, or the the, the uh, what do they call it, the serpentine belt arrangement around the front. You've got alternator, air conditioning punch, power power steering pump, everything. It, it looks enormous, and this huge, great big induction system. It's you know, it's like twice the size. But when you strip all that off, it's actually really compact. It's actually quite compact because it's a sixty degree V, not ninety. So it's actually quite relatively okay, narrow. Yeah. Um, uh, we had to change the sump and stuff because it sits much further back in the chassis uh, than it does in a Jaguar. So basically the, the, the capacity of the sump it hangs over the front subframe in the Jaguar. So you've got all of the oil bowl at the front where well, we had to literally yeah. turn that around because the engine sits further back. The cross member sits in front of the engine rather than at the back of the engine. So all that had to be redesigned to package it. But, um, uh, yeah, essentially it, it's, there's, there's, I wouldn't say it's, it's a... It, it was a tight fit in that, you know, I couldn't reuse things like the headers um, yeah, yeah. of the Jaguar. I couldn't reuse in. the sump. It didn't just drop in. The engine itself did, but all the ancillaries needed redesigning to package properly. And how much nicer or better is it now versus that first, <laughs> you know, <laughs> test oh, mule? Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, you can never, the designer and you never wants to stop tinkering. You're always changing something. Yeah. You're always fixing something. So we'll always find stuff that, mm, that could be a little bit better. But yeah, we're, it's it's night and day better now. But it's still got that. Yeah, but, but we, we haven't lost the um, hairs on the back of your neck goosebumps thing. That's still there. Yeah, we didn't engineer that. Ideal. Out. And yeah. and you now you're putting it in. So you start off putting it in Mark Ones. Yeah. Do you now put it in Mark Twos? Yes, yeah, so our current demonstrators are Mark Two. The Mark One and the Mark Two are effectively the same car. They're ostensibly the same okay. car underneath. It was. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a not a top hat. It was a um, it was just a, a facelift for one of a, a fairly extensive oh, okay. facelift. But a, fundamentally, the chassis and engine bay, everything, all the mechanicals are the same underneath. The Mark III is a different kettle of fish. That's a completely different platform. So um, there's very little that's the same. It's the same in principle. Yeah. Everything's the same but different. So you can't swap the parts <laughs> over. So, but it's yeah, different it's, enough that yes. 
Exactly. In fact, to the point where I think the gearbox is actually the same. It's the same gearbox. It's just got a different bell housing, a different, um, different yeah. splines, different this, different, but it's effectively the same thing. So just make it nice and difficult for us. Rebranded. Sure they saw us coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, performance-wise, what's the standard car do? What do you get from the engine? And how does that translate? Uh, do you know what? I've really no idea. And it's, it was never, <laughs> it's, it was never part of the brief. It was, that wasn't what it was about. It wasn't about, um, you know, bragging rights, horsepower, blah, 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 blah. But it's how the thing felt. This goes back to that sort of, what do we want out of this? What's it, what's it got to achieve? And it's, yeah. it, it's the feeling. Do you get out of it and do you smile and do you look back over your shoulder? All those tests. Those are the yeah. tests we've, we've met. Not, we didn't have horsepower targets or torque targets or more to 60 <laughs> targets. But I can tell you, it's a, we're at about 280 horsepower now, uh, with sort of tweaks to the, to the map and tweaks to the induction system and tweaks to the exhaust. So we're about 280 stock now. That's stock in terms. And what's a normal? What's stock? A stock non your oh, engine? Oh, uh, um, about 130, 140. Okay, so that's a significant. Yeah, about yeah. You're twice the power, twice the horse, twice the power, twice the torque. No weight penalty. How does it? You know, driving one versus the other. What's the experience difference of the two? Okay, that's how do I articulate that? So, the things are. It's still a Mazda to drive. It still yeah. feels like a Mazda. I.e., the weight distribution. Um, we don't change things like the brakes. You don't have to because the car's no heavier. So, on the road, certainly there's no more demand mm. on the already very good brakes. So the steering feels still there. The balance is still there. The way it turns in, that sort of you know pointy feeling at the, uh, at the front end. It's just okay. Here's here's a way to summarise it. This is how Tom Matano summarised it: MX-5 amplified. <laughs> which I think is a beautiful way of actually uh, summarising it. So, yes, it's still an MX-5 to drive. It's got all of those attributes. It's got all of those things that um, even the big sports car companies now still benchmark against. Christian von Koenigsegg, for example, recently said, you know, there's a purity in the MX-5 that you just can't find. And, you know, people like McLaren, people like Koenigsegg all benchmark against that kind of thing. So those things are still there. What you've got now, though, is it's kind of a, it's not Jekyll and Hyde, that's the wrong way of putting it, but it's got this um, bandwidth, this breadth of character to it. So you can bumble about uh, 1500 RPM in fifth or sixth gear, and it's perfectly happy and it's effortless, and you can poodle mm. around town and stuff like that. You don't have to change down if you want to you know, do a, a quick overtake or something like that. It's just effortless. But if you do, and again, Dan was the one who nailed this, in his his, uh, his um, assessment of it, if you do drive it in the higher echelons of the, of the rev range, if you do ring its neck, it just comes alive. It's again, it, and it's just down to that engine. It's got this real spine tingling soundtrack. It just keeps delivering. It's got this. The torque peaks at about um, two and a half to three thousand RPM, but it just stays flat. It's just there all the time, yeah. and the power just keeps climbing. And you can really feel that. It's it just it's it's almost like a sports bike the way it revs. It's so linear, um, and and the noise that it that it that it uh, you know it's it's goosebumps. It's great. It just makes you smile. <laughs> you can't stop smiling, and that's, that's what it's all about. And the other thing about the, the, the and I say it's still an MX-5 is um, you know for a B-road blast, nothing quite matches that car purely because of its size, its diminutive size. Yeah. Even something like you know even a Boxster, which isn't a big car, you still have to breathe in. 
something coming the other yeah, way down a B road. This thing just soaks it up, and, and you know, you don't. It's it's it's, it's just a perfect little tool for for that sort of thing. Yeah, and presumably you get. It's, I've I've not driven many X, MX5s. I've done a little bit of racing Come and drive in this Mark one. one. I, I'm keen. I'm keen. Do, yeah. um, whereabouts are you based? Uh, well, the, the workshop's in Hungerford in Berkshire. Um, I live okay. in Farnham in Surrey. So, uh, but basically, yeah, all the demonstrations take place. Basically, I share a space with Bassett Down Balancing. I got in touch with Bassett Down because I needed someone who could build engines. Simultaneously, they got in touch with me because he's an MXR5 enthusiast and was interested in putting this engine in, in his car. <laughs> and so we thought, hang on a minute, aren't you the bloke who found... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ever since, we've been working together, basically, and to the point where Andy, Andy Bell, the guy who runs the place, said, um, look, we're building the engines in this room. There's a ramp in this room. Why don't you just come and build them here? So, it's, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I've been there ever since. Nice. So we are getting a bit pushed for space, but um, uh, but that's basically how it's been working ever since. Um, no, it sounds, and it's, it sounds he, good. he builds, you know, the engine's already very, very good, um, but the engines that he rebuilds, they're all, they're basically blueprinted. So um, all the pistons and rods and everything are all matched for size and, and weight. Okay all dynamically balanced, the things, you know, built to the highest possible tolerance. And it does make a difference. It feels different. You, you can, I've, we've had, uh, you know, brand new engines from Jaguar, which are great, but they're not as nice as a rebuilt one from Bassett Down. They do, mm. they're, they're sweeter. And then, so presumably as well, with this, the more torque and power, you get an, an adjustability, yeah. a throttle adjustability that you don't have in... Yes. The standard car. Yeah. Which can which be a bit hairy. probably makes it slightly more yeah. fun. <laughs> it's, it's very analogue. Very, very analogue. But again, uh, benign. Um, I used to have a Lotus Elise, which was a huge amount of fun. I'm probably not much of a helmsman, but I spent more t- on track days, I spent more time going backwards in that thing. I could never... Um, <laughs> it was... But the, 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 the MX-5 chassis is so much more predictable. You've got so much more... You know, it gives you notice before the tail comes round and asks mm. you how much you'd like it to come round with your right foot sort of thing. It's, it's, yeah. it's so much more rewarding. It makes you feel like a driving god. They're, they're great in that respect. Uh, whereas the, well, the Lotus perfect. just made me feel completely hopeless. It was a lovely <laughs> little car and, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of fun, but I just, I never, maybe I just didn't get the hang of it. And like I said, I'm probably not much of a helmsman. But I think if you have found a car that seems, you know, you can drive it well, you can obviously drive, to, you know, to some extent, and then to if you flip flop yeah. between a few different cars, and some are hard. Yeah, like, I think that's something that like various companies do well. But yeah, the MX Five is great at, or uh, pretty much all Porsches are like that. They like, they make it seem everything's easy, yeah. And then you just push it harder, and it's still easy, even though you're pushing harder. Whereas some yeah. cars, you push them harder and harder, and then they suddenly start to get really tricky and yeah. really like yeah, the lotus felt you've like got to be so on it um and that's yes yeah, was sometimes possibly entertaining i don't know whether feeling like you're not quite in control is actually that yeah, exactly I, I, on a track it's all right even on a track it's a bit heart in mouth but on, a, on the mm. road you can't you just know bad idea have you started doing other modifications to the mx5 now uh, yes and no. The, the reason why is this, a lot of that is so well catered for by lots of other people in the aftermarket. So yeah. there's, you know, there's companies doing excellent, um, coilovers and dampers and stuff like that. There's companies doing 
excellent chassis bracing and stuff like that. I think it's pretty well covered. Um, there are some things we're looking at that we'd like to do ourselves because we think we could do it slightly better, better in terms of match with our kit, not necessarily better in yeah, terms yeah. of what other people are doing. Not really. We're doing a lot more in the in the way of sort of um, colouring materials, that sort of stuff. So getting okay. What I what I really like to do is is, is move more towards the resto mod side of things which is where we completely okay. ground up, rebuild the car, because there's so much you can do when you take it down to that level, when you take it apart to that level. You can address some of the fundamental issues that the car might have. So things like the chassis stiffness is always, is everyone knows that, the, you know, one, it hasn't got a roof, so that doesn't help. But there's all sorts of things you can do to improve that. And also you're talking about a 20, 25-year-old car. It's probably yeah. got a little bit baggy in terms of its, you know, chassis stiffness. So we can, you know, seam weld and address issues like that and put little, you know, gussets and things like that in the right places. Yeah, there's, that's, that's something we really want to get into. The problem with, the problem, and, and, and this, is, this is no secret, um, the problem with the MX-5 as a, as a resto mod um, proposition is it's very cheap. If ever there was a case of, you know, or you, you, know you get what you pay for, the, the MX-5 is kind of the, the exception that proves the rule. It is, you know, by any benchmark, by any standard, it's up there as a driving proposition. It's up there with the, with, with the greats, even now. Um, and yet it's, you can pick them up for 1,500 quid, two grand. It's this like, yeah. hang on a minute, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't, doesn't follow the usual rules. So as a benchmark, as a, as a foundation, as a, as a fundamental, if you were going to design a sports car from scratch... You'd set out all your attributes and all the criteria you'd like to meet. Well, the Mazda MX-5 ticks 90% of them already. So if you use that as a foundation, and that's why we chose the MX-5, not because it's cute or because it's got pop-up headlights or anything like that, or because it's cheap. We chose it because it's a fantastic platform. And as a driving mm. experience, there's nothing comes close. I always get the question as like, oh, crikey, you know, 15 grand, that's a lot of money to put into a, a two grand car. Well... Yeah. Yes, I see your point, but you're looking at it wrong. Look at what it actually delivers at the end of it. So you're talking yeah, about a, 20, you a, 20, 17. a 17 grand car or a 20 grand car by the time you've you know, done some springs and dampers and addressed the rust and, rust and stuff like that. You can't buy anything that drives like that does. Yes, you could go and buy a Porsche Boxster. Yes, you could buy and buy, go and buy a Cayman, but they're different. I'm not saying they're bad, but they are different and... I've got customers who say, actually, I prefer my MXV6 to my Porsche Boxster because the Porsche Boxster is almost too good and too big. Yeah. And so how long's a piece of string? How far do you go? Um, and you, you can go mad. You could go alcoholics mad with it. We could put titanium suspension on it. We could put, yeah. um, you know, carbon fiber, this, that, and the other. And it would be, you know, fantastic, but it would cost £300,000. Like the, yes. like, the alpha, um, like the Alphaholics does. And I would argue I'd love to do that because I reckon it would probably still drive better than the Alpha because the fundamentals are there. One of the, when I, was, yeah. I used to work at Ford, um, and the, the CEO at the time was a chap called, um, I've got to forget his name now. One of his favourite sayings was, um, he was talking about um, basketball coaches. Uh, one of their favourite sayings was, you can't train seven feet tall. Hire the talent. <laughs> yeah, and it's true. Yeah. That you, you know, it doesn't matter how, um, how much money you invest in or how much carbon you throw out or how much power you throw out it. If the fundamentals aren't there, you've, you, you, there's, a, there's a ceiling to how far, you, how far you can improve it. 
The MX-5 is, is seven feet tall. It's got the fundamentals. It's got all of those things that they got so right. Um, so as a foundation, as a building block, as a, to, to do something like a resto mod, I think there's fewer things out there that, that, that could compete. But like going back to what I was really saying was that from a, a branding point of view, people have struggled to get their head around the idea of spending 30, 40, 50,000 pounds on a two grand car. Yes. I'd say that a hundred thousand pounds or 50 to a hundred thousand pounds spent on MX-5 would deliver a much better driving experience than the Alphaholics. There you go. There's a challenge. Yeah. If someone wants to, Fair play. If, someone, if someone wants to commission that build, I'd love to build. You know what though? I think give it the same sort of time period. Now I don't think well, you want to true. be waiting yeah. this long, but until people start getting, I think people are a bit nostalgic about MX-5s. Yeah. People love their MX-5s, but like they're not, they're old, but they're not that old yet. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah that's true. That's so true. give it another 20 years and people will be like, oh yeah, I remember my first sports car. It was an MX-5. Now yeah. I've got more money. You know what? Let's spend 50 grand, yeah, I whatever, 80 grand. Because yeah. I imagine a- those Alfa Romeos weren't that particularly desirable at the time. Most of them were, you know, dustpan and brush jobs. At the, yeah. You know, if they were ever a barn find, it was a, it was a, you know, probably four tires left and the rest of uh, dissolved like <laughs> Alka-Seltzer. So I don't think they made them in quite the same volume. That's true. But... Yeah, so there's fewer of them. So there's a rarity uh, value to them. But I don't know. I, I've and never driven one, so I don't know what they were like but... as um, you know, racing propositions or driving propositions back in the day. I imagine they're pretty average. They've got to be pretty crappy. Like, all cars yeah. in that era it's, it's, are a bit yeah. average. <laughs> it's a 1960s Italian. So On your website, yeah. there is a car that's had the interior done. That's, that's our Mark One demonstrator. Okay. So yeah, which is so a you bit... do interiors. Yes. Yeah, yeah, interiors. absolutely. Yeah, we can, we've, we've done that sort of thing for customers. Uh, the full interior and yeah, all of that stuff. The, yeah, the interior looks lovely. Uh, it's going back to the seven feet tall argument. The fundamentals are all there. So the ergonomics are great. It's all reliable um, in terms of their functionality and stuff. There's nothing exotic in there, like you know. Um, infotainment systems and traction control it's mm. all very basic and analog but that's part of the the, the appeal yeah. but um in essence so I, I worked at um i've worked at ford i worked at mclaren i've worked at overfit so I've, I've taken a few cars apart and fundamentally mm. the the substrate if you like the big piece of plastic that sits across the front of the car that is the dashboard is it's a big injection molding it's uh, they're all effectively the same. What differs them is is the material they slap on top. A McLaren, for example, is, has swathes and swathes of, of Alcantara, and it's beautiful. Mm. And, it, and it's you know, but you could do the same to a, to an Mazda MX-5 quite easily, um, and achieve a very similar um, effect. No, it looks it looks great. Like it looks really nice. I've got a picture up on. The oh, I see. Right okay, yeah, that makes sense now. That's why I keep looking off to the side. Um, <laughs> Um, that was that was done while I was at, um, actually at Overfinch. Um, I had a, uh, a trim team there, so um, mm. I used uh, got them to, to, to do that interior. Shh. Well, let's um, sort out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we had some. There was they were selling off some uh, Bentley leather, the uh, the fire glow leather. So it was like, oh, we can get there. Mm. I was going to do uh, the original intention was to do it tan, but this red stuff came up really cheap. So um, it's, it's actually Bentley fire glow leather in there. Oh, nice. I, I think it looks great. It looks really, works really well. It's a black car with this red, yeah, amazing it's, leather. It's one of my, um, it's my favourite combination. I'm actually going to paint that car grey 
So it's one of my favourite combinations is a dark grey with, mm. with an oxblood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would look good. So what's it, so what's it cost to do an interior like this? Oh, crikey. No, this is all sort of... It varies. It, it, it's, you know, again, how long is a piece of string? So that, that car, so um, all the plastics were colour matched. So the plastics that weren't covered in leather were, were painted to match the, the red okay. leather. The top of the dash has been done, all the bolsters, the doors, the, um, all the, um, the underside of the dash is all done. Um, so that would typically, and the seats, and there's also a parcel shelf. So the whole, yep. the whole interior of that was done. Um, that would probably cost you in, you know, done to that level, probably about six or 7,000. Okay. Oh, this looks great. It's yeah. And it's a lovely place to be. It's, I mean, it really is. And yeah, we're building, we're building a similar car for a customer at the moment. And that, that's going to be fantastic. That's going to be lovely. And like I said, it feels like, you know, it doesn't feel like a two grand car in there. I can assure you. No, no, but that's that's the point. It's just those. The, the only thing that differs something like the MX-5 to, I don't know, a Mercedes or a Bentley or something like that is ostensibly the, the finishes, the materials. It's it's more than that. I'm being slightly disingenuous of Bentley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, um, a little bit. But but if you use yeah, if you get rid of the cheap plastic from a user, yes, from a user point of view, from a user perspective, that's you know of a similar era. I mean, yeah, things like panel gaps and, you know, the fit and finish of a Bentley these days is just unbelievable. It's, you know, pretty But they much- weigh like four million tons. Uh, yes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. They are heavy, but I don't think that's... Yeah, and, and the, the number of cows inside probably contributes to that somewhat. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, they are amazing. They, a, a modern Bentley is a yeah, pretty it's an extraordinary place thing. to sit. Yeah. My my role at McLaren was um perceived quality. And so we benchmarked okay. a, lot, a lot of things um like Bentleys and Rolls-Royce and Audi everything basically. And yeah, Bentleys are just wow. Perceived quality at McLaren. Well, yeah, perceived yeah. quality. Yeah, um okay, you're going to ask me what the hell is that? And that was well, my no, question. I'm of... thinking of McLarens <laughs> and perceived quality and the uh, issues yeah, I've is... come across of <laughs> yeah. panels. Do you want to deal with the real quality and... first? Yeah, that's, I, yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was, yeah, one of the things that was. But perceived quality is about, um, again, it's from that user perspective. So you can, um, you can quantify quality in terms of panel gaps and you know, surface finish and all that sort of stuff, all in engineering terms. Mm. Um, it hasn't got this much roughness and. The panel gap is, you know, 0.1 of a millimeter, blah, 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 blah. But, and the customer does see that, but they also see other stuff that you probably don't measure. So things like, well, okay, what's beyond that panel gap? 
can you see through the panel gap and what's behind it? So mm. things that you you know pick up like that that can um, have an impact on how you perceive the quality of a car. You do get in a car and whether or actually just as a human using anything. If I look around my desk, I've got all sorts of random things on here. I've got a random webcam. I pick that up. I've got a, a pen knife. This is a perfect example of perceived quality. Like it's an item you pick up and instantly you go like. Ooh, yeah is it heavy this is like is it cold it's heavy it, yeah it's like it's not it's not it's it's like made well like nice stainless steel it's got a nice wood hand all that sort of stuff and you yeah. pick it up and instantly you go like hmm this is nice yes that's that's perceived quality so yeah so um a good example is there were some uh uh some switches that you use in the mclaren and they were originally they were um machined cnc no hang on they were originally they were um injection molded and uh plated chrome plated okay. and they felt fine one of the proposals was let's make these out of cnc let's cnc machine them because that's a much nicer quality yeah but because they were designed to be an injection molding the they didn't translate well as a as a cnc part so they actually felt slightly cheaper the plastic part that's felt weird. better and looked better we like cnc machining and we like solid materials and stuff like that yes if they're perceived to be that but if you think it's a piece of plastic because it looks like a piece of plastic. It doesn't matter how, whether it's CNC machine cast or, yeah. you know, cast out of unobtainium or something. If you imagine it, that it's, that it's, um, that it's uh, plastic or CNC machine, but it doesn't deliver on that perception, the perception goes away. So, yeah, yeah so that, you know, um, I think Jaguars do this particularly badly. Their, their stuff looks fantastic, but you get up close to it and it's a bit plasticky and... Mm. Yes. Not quite, you know, and it's a disappointment. It looks great. So it, 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 there's, a, there's a, a journey, if you like, that the customer takes. You, you, and this is all subconscious. You see the thing, yeah. you drink it in, you drink in the proportions, the, you know, the wheels, the way they sit in the arches, and does it sit right, and the proportions of the glass to the body and all that sort of stuff. And then you start getting closer and you see the details and they all look beautiful. And then if you actually physically touch them and they don't deliver on that thing, the whole thing just is just, just shattered. Falls apart. Falls apart. So I think there's, yeah. there's, there's a lot to be said for, you know, being honest in the first place. Don't set up those yeah. perceptions to be so high and then you won't disappoint. Yeah. Cause if you have presumably like if you CNC, I don't know, titanium button or something, but, or aluminium or whatever, but it's super, super, super thin. Yeah. It's not going to feel like meth. It's it's not going to feel like what it looks like. Yes, it looks like it should be a solid bit exactly. of metal. Yeah, chuchunk. Exactly. Do you remember? Do you remember when they started getting really exotic with wood? So you know, mm. wood veneer was a was a you know they started sticking it over everything, um, and they started getting yeah. very clever about how they could actually put these veneers over compound surfaces. But up until that point, our perception of wood was it's this sort of flat material, and it looks yes. good and uh, on on flat substrates because that's how wood works. But then we started putting wood on compound surfaces and everybody thought it was plastic. No, no, it's real wood. (laughs) Well, it looks like plastic because wood doesn't do that. And it's it's if it doesn't um, deliver on those preconceptions. Take a Land Rover, for example. In terms of quality, they're dreadful. You know, you could drive a bus through some of the panel gaps. But they're so honest that, that, you know, when you actually go and open the door, it actually feels slightly heavier and clunkier and better than than you were led to believe so the perception yes. goes up the promise is here the delivery is here so whereas yeah. you know things like You're the talk about the jaguar the promise is here but the delivery is down here it's also going it's always going to disappoint so that's, that's so true. yeah 
I, 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 I get to drive all sorts of expensive, amazing stuff. And I've drink, driven a bunch of cheaper things recently. Like a, I had a Fiesta ST for a bit yep. and some stuff like that. And cars like that. And actually, I've just got a Peugeot 208. Um, and both of those cars, you open the door and you shut the door and they make what I would say is like a quality sounding thunk when they Are shut. Even the Peugeot, that's and interesting. Even the Peugeot's like, it's, it's not like Audi, yeah. Bentley level but it's still reassuringly like solid and you immediately go like, Oh, plus like 20% yeah. of like perception of the car. Like I did not expect it to be like this and it's better. Yeah. That's yeah, absolutely. Ford do that. Well, I think um, yeah. I used to work at Ford no, as well. Um, and that, that ST is an amazing thing. Um, I was lucky enough. Oh, this, it was the previous car. model, but um, I went out to Lommel, which is their proving ground in Belgium. Um, was taken around the track. It was at the law- well, they were just about to launch the Focus RS. Um, mm. One of their test drivers took us around their test track in the Focus. I remember when I say a test track, it's not a race track. It's a test track, and this thing is is you know it's set up to deliberately um, put a car off off kilter. Yeah. So it's you know adverse um, camber and blind camber crests and, whatever, and yeah. slippery surfaces, <laughs> cobbles and stuff like that. It's just you know. It's a proper nightmare of a circuit. And this, the way this driver took it around, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it, goes, it reinforces yeah. my idea that I'm not much of a helmsman because the way these guys drive is <laughs> just incredible. Oh. And the focus, the focus was impressive. Um, mainly yeah. because you kind of expected that. It's the Focus RS. It's this flagship thing. But they also mm. took us around in a, in a Fiesta ST. And that thing was just unbelievable. It was almost more impressive than the Focus. Because, yes. hang on, this is a little hatchback. This shouldn't be doing this. It really shouldn't. The way this thing grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and hurled it around this track, complaining that, oh, it's not really fast enough and it's not. A, and we're hanging on for dear yeah, life yeah, in the yeah. back going, oh, my God. <laughs> just an just amazing like little a chat car. one hand. <laughs> yeah, amazing little car. Fantastic thing. Yeah, it's, it's the one. It, not many modern cars of that ilk move around. Like properly move around, and that's yeah. And they move around, yeah. And you're but like, that's so rewarding. And you know straight and away. The the the, the mass is the same. If you can feel it moving around, that's what delivers. It's not about the lap time. It's not about how fast it went from no. 0 to sixty. It's actually how it feels. And so yeah, I mean, the, the temptation is to put massive tires on the on the MX five with the no. 060. And no, 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 don't. Too much grip is definitely a bad thing. Yeah, it's yeah. a question of balance. No, it's, it's, always, it's always about the balance. It's hitting that it's balance. It's always about the balance. And I think a lot of people, and everyone has their own sort of personal journey of what they like in a car. And I think I've been through the more grip, more speed, more everything. And I'm I'm coming out the other side and I'm yeah. realising that I'm driving these road cars on the road. And the road, unfortunately, has speed limits and visibility limits and space and whatever so actually and the, the roads haven't got grip. any bigger certainly b roads no. but the cars have the cars no bigger exactly all the time. yeah you drive something modern and I don't know, like a an m5 or something and you're literally your wheels are one edge of the lane to the other edge of the lane pretty much and you've got a couple of inches yeah <laughs> five and inches either how side. much fun is that yeah to move around and then you drive something yeah older and smaller like i've got an old 911 and that you or a, something like a classic mini would be the perfect example yeah, or or minis are, yeah going back to your comparison about um you know alfa romeos and stuff like that if you look at 
uh, there's a there's a nice parallel between minis and MX5. So when I was a kid, my brothers were messing about with minis, and they were almost disposable. Mm. You know, you just sort of oh, this one's worn out. I'll go and get another one. It's it was cheaper to do that than to fix it. Yeah. And there's a kind of the same thing going on with MX5s at the moment. There's a sort of um, the younger generation. It's a very much an entry level tuning car, if you like, to mess about with. Yes. The same as minis were back in back in sort of I don't know late seventies, early eighties. And look at minis now. You go and buy a David Brown mini. They're sort of entry level is a hundred k, and they can't make enough of them. So maybe no, yes, absolutely. maybe I'm ahead of maybe Rocketeer's ahead of its time, and we just need to do it. Make wait twenty years to start making some money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My um, my brother-in-law actually put. I think he put a Subaru engine in a mini in an oh, old God, mini. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> and it was. Like, I think it, was it was hilarious. I bet. It was, uh, stupid. <laughs> yeah. But again, the, the, again, it's part of why we still do the kits um, as opposed to just doing, uh, you know, turnkey cars is because I think there's, um, you know, the car culture that built, not bought and kit cars yeah. and stuff like that. The idea of actually putting something together yourself and tinkering and messing about with it is um, it's so rewarding. Um, and it's, I think the, 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 there's an older generation now, um, an older demographic that's enjoying sort of reliving that youth and buying yeah. the kits and you know, um, building the thing themselves. There's, yeah, I think there's, there's a growing, um, you know, people have got a bit more time on their hands and, but they don't want to build a kit car. The problem with it, you know, a kit car is, yeah. um, you know, it leaks. It's sort of, you know, you're not, not, not entirely sure how well engineered the chassis is in terms of crash and all that sort of stuff. Whereas this kind of turns it on its head. You're, you've got the well-engineered chassis that, that will crash well and all that sort of stuff. And you're putting in, you're modifying it, updating it, rather than taking a donor car and putting it into a new chassis. I think I would definitely rather do that route. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> start with and again, I think like, again, this 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 perception people just take things like seals that work absolutely for granted, but they're probably yeah. the hardest thing to engineer on a car. Windscreen wipers that don't lift, you know, people just take mm. that for granted. But the amount of effort and engineering input that goes into making that stuff work, you know really simple hygiene entry-level stuff, um, which is, you know, a kit car company just simply doesn't have the resources to do to do that. So flip it on yeah. its head and do the, you know, take all the stuff that's well-engineered and and make it make it your own. There's, I think that's um, probably a more sensible yeah, it's, way. It's, it's, it's definitely more sensible. And I think it's one of those things you don't, if you don't have experience of older cars, for example, pre these things working, like I was chatting to someone yeah yesterday and we were talking about the evolution of uh cars designed for the uk and cars designed for germany and how that's sort of affected everything but he was talking about let's say like an early jaguar i don't know but say like 90s or something if you drove it at like 140 miles an hour on the autobahn the windscreen wipers would like stop working and stuff yeah. like that yeah, yeah because they've not been designed to work certainly not been tested at that level yeah and tested and stuff Whereas, like, the idea of windscreen wipers not working to me just ever seemed mad because I've only driven like modernish stuff where everything just works. And then I, um, so I have a backdated 911 SC that was being like messed with. And um, we took it to Sweden in the winter, which was fun. And um, (laughs) you're driving along in like minus 30 in the snow. And funnily enough, like, you can't see a thing. And the windscreen wipers just like, they just don't really work like that well. They're kind of there. Yeah. They almost make matters worse. Yeah. How such a 
a small but very fundamental part can make yeah. such a massive difference to your experience. Yeah, like and they've been developing or... those things, you know, when the windscreen wipers first came out, they were probably a great idea and better than nothing, but they've developed yes. them over 30 <laughs> years, 30, 40 years. So, yeah, they should bloody well work now. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, absolutely. And if you can get those things right without even having to play with it, yeah. so you buy a car where all these things work, like... You don't have to be adjusting carburettors at different times of year or whatever. All absolutely, that sort of stuff. absolutely. Yeah. Um, the car just fires up, it locks, all that sort of stuff, and yeah. then play with it. And like you said, the whole built not bought thing now. Yeah, it's, and the, there is uh, some of it. Some telling me that um, uh, an old they were comparing an old user manual with a new one, and the old ones mm. were they give you instructions how to do the cam timing or. Uh, adjust yeah. the, the, the clearances on the cams. A new one tells you not to drink the battery contents of the battery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a number for your dealership. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right, so I normally wrap these up with five questions. Oh, God, here they come. Really? Right, okay. Yeah. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Most memorable driving trip or journey? For good reasons or bad? Uh, okay. I, I took my family, well, yeah, my wife and, and son, we did a trip down to the south, to south of France in a Citroen C1 with a roof box on it. And uh, nice. that was, that was a, an amazing little car. I loved those cars because the, it goes back to that honesty thing. It's so fit for purpose, mm. that car. It's all the car you'd ever really need. Like I said, we, my wife uses it for pootling around and I use it for long trips every now and then. Everything gets chucked to the back. It's four doors. Yeah. And with a roof box, it took us on holiday to France. And the amount of French that pointed and laughed at. Because <laughs> I don't know why, but um, it's a French car, effectively. I have a lot of love for those. I, think I did brilliant. a 24-hour race in one. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so that, that's what's going to happen to my wife when it finally gives up. When we get her yeah. in, we'll, that'll go racing, I think, with my son. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wicked. But yeah, I loved that. That was fun. And the, the thing about the story was why it was memorable was because um, someone lent me a sat-nav. Um, and I don't know what he'd done, um, but he'd, I think he'd put one of the settings to avoid motorways or something. Ah, okay. So this yes. trip to, to France, we were going all over there. I was like, what the hell? You know, why the, oh, it's just taking so long. <laughs> and the amount of arguments and, you know, outbursts and stuff. It was, uh, so it was memorable for, it's kind of funny now, but at the time it was <laughs> pretty exasperating. And the other one was, um, uh, we, uh, over Finch, we did a trip, uh, I brought one of the cars back from Monaco. We had a, um, a show down in Monaco, and I drove one of the uh, our Range Rovers back. It's an L322 Range Rover back from Monaco, and I did the whole trip in pretty much a day. So it was about 1,250 miles or something, mm. and I just did it nonstop. And my gosh, just a perfect car for that. It was just brilliant. Yeah. It was you know you know better than a Bentley or something something like that. I mean, it yeah, was an overfitched really one, awesome. so it was it was you know dipped in leather and everything like that. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was supercharged and drank fuel like there was no tomorrow. But my God, it was just I you know I, after twelve hundred miles, I just jumped out of the thing fresh as a daisy. It was fantastic. Uh, so yeah, I've so got a, a nice. big love for Range Rovers. I do love Range Rovers. Yeah, I would love a like a mini one, like as in. And I don't mean a mini one as in like an Evoque or something. I mean a car that's like a hatchback yep. that has that Range Rover, Absolutely. like Bentley-esque yeah. Yeah. comfort, solid, 
isolate you from the environment. Exactly. And yeah, it can be more expensive. Like the Again, price yeah, to maybe yeah, a performance right. version. I used to think this, um, and the closest thing I could get to it, that, that you know, think, uh, okay, I want a small car. I want it to be economical because I'm doing loads of miles. Yeah. Um, I want it to be well built and quality and so on and so forth. But I want it to be small and economic. And the only cars that are available are small economic hatchbacks. The, the only thing that came close yeah. was an Audi A2. Okay. Because yeah, it was yeah. well built. It was an Audi. It, it was solid. It, it wasn't a brilliant ride and stuff like that. But it felt like a quality car, just small. Mm. So I have to, you know, you're right, absolutely right. Why is it that if you want a luxury car, it's got to be massive? I don't want a barge. Yeah. I just want luxury. Yeah. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And I thought the Signet was a fantastic idea. The Aston Martin Signet. Yes. yes. Great. Why not? That's a brilliant idea. I'll have one of those. <laughs> Um, but for some reason, they, you know, maybe it's because it was based on a Toyota or something. It wasn't really an Aston Martin. But I, th- yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, why have I got to have such a massive, you know, ostentatious barge just because I want something that's luxurious and, you know, feels great? And there's no reason why you couldn't do it. And it does seem like all manufacturers are set up that, let's say you take BMW and you go, one, two, one, two, three, five, seven, whatever. Yeah. A, Audi. B, C, D. Yeah, they're all, everything's segmented yeah. in and that way. And they go like, each level is like another level up of luxury, isolation, quality cars. And yeah. they all just go big, bigger, 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 ginormous. Yeah, absolutely whatever. And you're right. like, no, I, w- I want the biggest one in the smallest size. Yeah. Just do that. But it's just, it's just the way the mindset works. Uh, another example of that was... Um, I worked at Ford, and one of the things we were working on was uh, things like uh, commercial vehicles in particular. Mm. So the F-150, mm-hmm. um, there's exactly the same. You've got the basic model, which is, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, um, construction workers version, and yep. the big flagship model, which had everything everything on it. And the stupid thing was the, the big flagship model, again, this is going back to what understanding what the how people actually use the things and what users really, really want. The flagship model with sleeper seats, the, the buyers of those stay in hotels. They don't, they don't sleep in the cab. The construction <laughs> worker does. But he, ha- he doesn't want to spend $150,000 on his F-150 just to get the sleeper seats. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's nuts. It doesn't, nobody's really thinking about how these things are actually used. Well, Ford are now. I know that much. No, it's, it's, it's mad. And you, and you look at it and you go, okay, but there's no option this is the annoying thing about the car market. If people say, yeah, okay, the customer decides by buying or not buying, but often they're not given the choice. Exactly. You're not yeah, yeah, making yeah. the car that they probably would buy. Yeah. So and they it's, 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 fit into your yeah. ecosystem. It's when they, when they design the next Focus, they look at the old one and they look at the competitors. Yeah. So there's no real, it's like, okay, the whole, whole um, you know, automotive industry is set up that way. It's just, it's a big sausage machine. It's let's do the next focus, focus, and let's improve those things of the old focus. There was a again, I was working at Ford at the time, and there was this big poster up celebrating. I think it was fifty years of the Focus or something like that. Um, and it started with the Escort, you know, the Mark One Escort, and all these different models running down to here it is, the latest Focus. And one of the things of pride was the new Focus was completely clean sheet of paper. Nothing's going to be carried. It's going to be a completely new, fresh thinking. Blah 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 blah. Mm. But in the 50 years between that Escort and that Focus was 50 years and God knows how many billions of investment for each model, each facelift as you go down the years. And the cars were the same. They were fundamentally the same. 
they were okay. One was a hatchback. Now that, that was probably the most dramatic a, a difference between them. But they were still, you know, they had the you know entry level L, popular plus, blah 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 blah, up to gear or yeah. whatever it was. It still had that set of criteria. It was okay. Now it was I don't know what do they call it, uh, titanium and uh, vignale or something like that. But you still yeah. had this this uh, hierarchy of trim levels. And that's is that really how people still buy cars? It just seemed to me that in yeah. those 50 years and all those billions of pounds of investment, how little progress had actually been made. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, I, I don't envy anyone running. Jim Hackett. I just remembered his name. Jim Hackett. He was the, <laughs> he was the, the chief executive. He's not there anymore. He's not chief yeah. executive anymore. But he was, um, he was the one who came up with the basketball quote. And he was the one, he was, um, I think they were mad getting rid of him. Again, this is, this is why automotive industry, I think, is doomed. He was a proper visionary. He, he, he was advocating this. No, 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 no. Let's start from the ground up. Let's think about the customers and let's think about the, mm. the environment. Let's change cities. Let's change this. And this is, the, by the way, guys, this is going to take 20 years. But no, the shareholders wanted an answer next week and wanted more money. Yeah, and, more and money tomorrow. So he was gone. But I think what he was doing was fantastic. Well, we've, we've slightly deviated. Sorry, yeah. Uh, go the, on. Uh, Where's your other questions? questions? It's okay. Uh, five car garage. Five car Unlimited garage. value. Range Rover. Without a question, if I won the lottery tomorrow, yep. I'd either go out and buy, I'd buy a Range Rover. There's just nothing quite like them. I'd have an MXV6. Probably got one. Two, actually. Um, so, would you, would you have the? Would you go to town on it and do the? Yes, full I do the full resto mod on a Mark level. One. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. Okay. Mark One resto mod MX5 Range Rover at the other end. Um, crikey, you know, I get asked this question all the time, and I can't think. So those those are the two bookends, if you like. What will yeah. be in the middle? You've got your, your comfy daily, whatever. I'm not sure I need anything else, really. Um, I couldn't bring myself to buy a Ferrari because I think okay. the two look at me. Two you sort disagree of, with? With, what do I disagree with, sorry? The, the, I don't know, I don't know. Do you, do you disagree with the, the image it has? Uh, yes, exactly. I think what it says about you is is what I struggle with. It could be a, you know a fantastic driving machine and so on and so forth. But Agreed. I just, the way what it says about you is is um, yeah, couldn't do that. I think the Gordon Murray thing is not because of what it's worth, but because of what it's trying to achieve. I think that's mm. um, going to be a stunning thing um, for all the right reasons. It's going to be wicked. Yeah, for all the right reasons. And it, dare I say it? I'm actually trying to do the same sort of thing with the. With the um, with the MX Five, I'm just starting with a slightly smaller budget. But in yeah. essence, it's it's all about analog. It's all about you know I don't care about the weight. I don't I, the, sorry not the weight. I don't care about the power. I don't care about the naught sixty time. It's all academic. It's just how it makes you feel, how it feels. Um, so yeah, that's that's going to be an awesome thing. Citroen SM. Ooh. That was yeah. yeah. That was um, I was working at Bristol at the time. And the owner of Bristol had um, a Citroen SM, beautifully restored one. Um, and that was the thing that actually got me into the V6 idea, because that thing sounded just erotic. It was amazing. The Maserati mm. V6 in that was sounded glorious. But it was so ahead of its time, that kind. It still looks modern now. It still looks jaw-droppingly. And you used to go into the workshop cool. and you'd be sitting there down in a suspenser. It's practically on the floor. And the thing just like a spaceship every time. It was just... And it was, yeah, it was full of lo- loads of technology and clever ideas and clever thinking. <laughs> Another interest. Uh, I used to know, um, I was lucky enough to know Alex Moulton who, of uh, hydroelastic suspension fame, et cetera, et cetera. And one of, one of my favourite things he ever said to me was, um, French engineering, brilliant, 
but wrong. <laughs> Which kind of says there was the SM nice. was just it was full of lots of technology. Whether it was right or wrong, it was just clever and inspiring. Yeah. And um, uh, so yeah, Citroen SM. There's, that's that. That would be my classic. Um, and you've got one slot. Well, one slot. Would you have a track car, race car, or um, I'm trying to think of other things people go for? Yeah, a modern sports car, but if, you, if you're going to have a T50, that would... That kind of, yeah, that ticks all those boxes, doesn't it? And the Range Rover ticks so many boxes. Um, mm, it does. I think I might be tempted by... Okay, here's going to be completely dark. Either 2CV, or specifically a Citroen Diane, just because I had one when I was a student. And that was just, yeah. it was just a wonderful thing, and just so interesting. Um, or probably, dare I say, I know it's a bit of a footballer's thing, but a, a Bentley Continental Speed... Uh, speed of GT oh. speed. Um, mm. uh, we did a trip to uh, uh, Geneva Motor Show where we were doing some benchmarking for McLaren. And they were, they were launching yeah. it there. And <laughs> there were two cars on the stand. One was the GT speed, which was absolutely, it was, was brilliantly executed. It was, you know, in terms of quality, it was, um, yeah. and I did have one briefly, not mine. It was, I just drove one around for a while. And it was one of those mm-hmm. cars that just sort of grew on you kind of a keeper you wouldn't want to sell it because the older yeah. it got the better it got the leather would get a bit cracked and creaky and but it was still it just have oodles of character and charm so I, I thought yeah. that but the other car on the stand at bentley at the time was the um the blower bentley it was sort of five million quid thing mm. and that was oh that was just beautiful all the cracked leather the old dials and yeah. the worn brass and just as a thing to behold it was and the union jack on the back it was yeah, that was fabulous. So either a Bentley GT Speed or the Blower Bentley. That was lovely. Blower Bentley. I, I want Bentley to make a modern sports car. Because I'd argue they don't make a sports car. They might argue they make a sports car, but they, no, they the make GT like cars. a luxury GT. I want them to make a sports car again. Yes. Okay. What would that be? Relive some of that. I don't know. I, it, What's the modern interpretation of a Blower Bentley? Okay, I'll have one of those. When you've decided what it is, I'll have one of those. <laughs> yeah, something like that. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life, you're allowed a 500-pound car on the side. Well, probably the Range Rover then. The Range Rover and, um, and a TCV. The Range Rover, I, used to, I loved the Range Rover and uh, the whole philosophy of it when we were at Overfinch was just, you know, it's the car, it's the everyday supercar with the Chevy V8s in it and stuff like that. It was, you know, high performance, yeah. all the performance you'd ever need, certainly. But all the practicality, and one of the uh, one of the customers was um, he used to say, "Well, I could I can I take my kids for a walk up on up at the up on the common or something. If I turn up in a in a Rolls Royce and take their scooters and bikes and stuff out of the back, I just look like a complete idiot. If I turn up in a yeah. Range Rover, be it an Overfinch or whatever, nobody looks twice. It kind of fits, no. and that's the beauty of a Range Rover. It just fits any kind of occasion. Yeah, you could drive the Queen around in it." Yeah, or, or drive up go the plugging through a field, or, yeah, or go whatever. To, go to the tip. Yeah, you get away, with and everyone that. just goes, "Oh, it's fine." Yeah, I um, I went to the tip the other day. I have a nine nine seven GT three RS. Oh right, it okay. just so happened to be the what, only car. What earth that it was did you? Like, <laughs> what did you put it all on? I needed to. I needed to get rid of an old car battery. Oh okay, and, fair um, enough. So I just take it to the tip, and <laughs> open the front, took the battery out, and everyone's just looking at you like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, why are you here? Like, I, I have a man to do that <laughs> sort of thing, yeah. <laughs> okay, what do you think is the most 
undervalued car at the moment? What do you think should be more expensive? What's or like is relatively cheap? Am I allowed to say yeah. an X V6? Um, you could say that. <laughs> that would be the, the classic answer. I think it's. I think it's fantastic car. value. In all honesty, I don't think you can buy anything else that delivers in the same way. If it had a Porsche badge on it, it would be three times the price, and people wouldn't blink. But because it's an NX5, I think there's a there's a ceiling to what you could charge for it at the moment. Mm. I think I hope that will change. Um, and I think as people try to understand it better, um, with hopefully with um, things like this and some marketing effort, um, certainly, certainly customers who've got them now get them, understand them, um, and you know think, yeah, it's, it's fantastic value for money. But uh, yeah. what else? Alex loves his, and it, yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's again the beauty of the MS5 is you could twist it so many different ways. If I was to build one, mm. it wouldn't be like Alex's. It would be yeah. it would be like my Mark One, which is much more sort of you know little GT car. Uh, but you can. I mean, uh, Andy at Bassett Downs just built um, a track car that's nine hundred kilos and two hundred and eighty horsepower, and it's an absolute weapon. It's unbelievable. Nice. It was, I bet that's amazing. It is. It's extraordinary. It's still got some sorting out to do and, and things like he's put funny brakes in it, and the, he's got the ratios wrong of the um, master cylinder to, to uh, calipers. But once that's sorted out, and you can get it <laughs> okay. to stop properly. Yeah. It's yeah. It's it's. We're just trying to think of where we can campaign it because it's 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 a it's a proper race car. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, anyway, no. we, I, I sounds wicked. Digress again. Diverse. Um, what I think is an undervalued car. Oh, what in terms of new cars or old uh, stuff? Anything. So like looking at the market right now, you go like those should be worth more. Yeah, yeah. That's worth buying one of those now, and because that will only go one yeah. way in value. Um. Well, I think an MX-5 Mark One is a good investment. They're, they're, they're definitely, only because you know, I've got my finger on that particular pulse, they're definitely going up in value um, very quickly. And they can't go, they've definitely hit the, yeah, can't yeah. go much They can't go any can't lower. Go much yeah, yeah. lower. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna, only going to go one way. Um, what does a, a nicely, like a nice-ish Mark One cost now? Um, probably about five. Five okay. or six. Um they are, you know, some of the pristine models people are asking twenty for. Whether they actually get that or not, I don't know. Wow. But um, but we could restore you a car f- for for that kind of money. So, um, but I suppose it's not original. Yeah, uh, there's all that sort of provenance argument to go with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But if you're putting a V6, any provenance has gone out the window anyway. So, and I guess those people are they're trying to tap into that. I wanted an MX5. I think there's a lot of that. When I was, yeah, I think I think there is. There's certainly um, a demographic that is. I'm um, I'm going to have the cars that I I hankered after as a youth, but could never afford. Mm. But now I've got a bit more disposable income. And try and get them with as low a mileage as possible, yeah. so that they're effectively driving a new car, yeah. even though you kind of have to rebuild it to drive it. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking around all the time for um, you know half decent ones at the right price, which will be completely restored, and the prices are definitely yeah. are definitely going up without question. Right, final question. Go on. What's the most interesting car to you at the moment? Interesting car. To what are you looking up? Uh, well, the, the Gordon Murray thing, certainly. Um, mm. I know that's probably a bit of a cliche answer, but it is. It's fascinating, and the, the, the focus on that—it's all the things <laughs> I wish. How is it not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all the things I wish McLaren had been. Um, yes. Some of the stuff there, but it's yeah, it's, it's to my mind, it's I, what they should have been doing, but but weren't. You look at that car. And go, I just don't understand, and there, there's got to be some reasons why, but 
other manufacturers haven't made something like that. Or for me, it's, I don't understand why a manufacturer doesn't make something that's like half of that car. So I don't know, five, 600 horsepower, yeah, 1100 again, kilos. So there's, manual. there's, there's always exactly that. There's always a compromise. There's, there's three things you want. It's got to be fast. And by fast, I mean, quick to market, not, not, you can't spend forever mm-hmm. developing it. It's got to be yeah. cheap or affordable or at the right price point for the right demographic, that sort of thing. So fast, cheap, um, and good. So quality. So you pick two. You, you're always going to compromise on one or the other. So the Gordon Murray one, you say, oh, that's a no-compromise car. It's not. They've compromised the cost. That thing's going to be horrendously expensive. Yeah. But it's going to be absolutely brilliant on every other level. So I think it's a question of where you put the compromises. So, again, you know, I don't want to ride on Gordon Murray's coattails, but I will. That's kind of what I'm doing. That's kind of what Rocketeer's doing. We're trying to build something that's a bit special, um, and we're making the right compromises for the right reasons. So we're using... Um, a car that's already fundamentally brilliant um, and just trying to uh, infill the gaps in in mm. what it delivers by other means. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's cost effective. But again, it goes back to having the vision, the vision right. Um, and I think what's gone wrong at McLaren is the, the vision's gone a little bit. It's, it's, it's a car company now. It's not this, um, and Gordon Murray himself says this, you can't build what he's building with a hierarchy with layers and layers of management because it's just no. um so the people running mclaren now are, are all you know brilliant but ex large uh, corporate sausage machine car manufacturers and the decisions that those engineers make are very different to the engine to, to the, the decisions that people like gordon murray will make because his focus is absolutely the user whereas the corporate structure is going to make decisions in favor of the shareholders for one of a you know um, yeah. And that probably is more important than anything else. It's, you know, what's our bottom line? Where's, where's, um, but Gordon Murray's trying to create a, a vision, and if it makes some money, he'll be happy. McLaren F1 was notoriously only ever broke even, if that. But mm. look at the thing, the legacy of it. So there's a balance to be made. I mean, you, there's lots of people out there Absolutely. who want to build fantastic sports cars and will lose their shirt because they'll, they'll do it wrong. They'll make compromises for the wrong reasons in the wrong areas. So it's a, I've no doubt that, that Gordon Murray is making the right compromises in terms of cost, but they, they, they will be there. They're just less of a criteria than, than they are at someone like McLaren. Yeah, and they've they sold out the T50, uh, apparently, very, very, very quickly. Yeah. And they sold all, whatever number of it is, 300 cars or something, I'm not sure how many it is, yeah. um, very, very quickly. And we look at other manufacturers, and yes, they're, they're sort of doing the right thing, for them based on their decisions or whatever, but we're seeing all these special editions, which are not really selling out anymore. No, I mean, they're not exactly. selling that many. Yeah, yeah. They're probably um, still making loads of money. And they're just diluting the brands. I think it, you look at these cars and goes, okay, how many cars for nearly a million pounds can you buy these days? And the answer is a lot. And how many are people buying yeah. a lot less than people are making? And the, the fundamental truth is that, you know, there's people like you and me, who have the same aspirations, have the same passions as all those people. The only thing that differs us is, is our means. I haven't got £2 million to spend on a car. If I did mm. have that kind of money, I probably would. But it doesn't mean that that edge is still there to scratch. I still need something in my life that, that fulfills those emotional needs, if you like. And, I, I'm, you know, there are, there are plenty of niches that people fill. 
um, for those things. And, you know, things like Alphaholics is one of them. And it's, and it's finding the product at the price for a certain group of people. Because it, it, by all accounts, someone like Lotus has been making driver's cars, but for some reason people haven't been buying tons and tons of them. And it's not because they're not great to drive, because they are great to drive. It's all the other stuff that comes around with a brand and an image and whatever that's making someone go, I'm going to buy a Porsche 911. And trying to make a car for 30,000 people, but 30,000 people are going to spend, what, say, 100 grand on or something. Yeah. No, thanks. I don't want to do that. Like, I can see why all of these small things have popped up, like yourselves, yeah. where you could say, if I sold 300, yeah. I'd be doing amazingly. Or, you know, your alcoholics, they sell 10 a, 10 a year or whatever it is or something yeah. like that. They've only got to find those 10 people. Yes. You've got to find your small, crazy, enthusiastic audience. Yes. that have got the budget for your project and just reach them. Yeah. And, and the, then screw the, the, If, if you're, matter. you know, it's, it's a pyramid. It's, you know, it's a big triangle. So the people with 10 to 20,000 pounds to spend on a car, there's a lot of those. You get up towards, hmm. you know, people who've got a million pounds to spend on a car. The air is getting pretty thin up there. There's very few people of them. Um, at all, in and there's total, lots of and cars of available. those who will buy the, who will spend the money on a car and not a racehorse or a piece of art, uh, as a percentage of the the total, you know, population, actually, petrol heads probably aren't that big. No, depressingly so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I think yeah, we'll, anyway. we'll find some buyers. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Well, the sound, the car sounds fun. I'm, come I'm and drive it. Come and have come a go. Come and have a go. I invite anyone who's you know seriously wants to. Doesn't believe me? Come and drive it. And I warn you, though. And even if you do, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you do, then you know, proof of the pudding and all that. It sounds great. <laughs> it sounds exactly like something I want. Um, well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.